0: You're listening to the Mad River Anthology. I'm Lorena Boswell, and my guest tonight is Tara Hardy. Tara is a six time National Poetry Slam. Finalist, and she's also the founder of Bent, which she'll tell you about in a minute. And she is the daughter of the United Auto Workers. So welcome to the show, Tara. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks, Lorena. I'm so glad to have you. It's such a a thrill, actually.
1: For me, too. Humboldt is amazing and has been really amazing to me in the last two days.
0: It's wonderful. Yeah. So can you start by um, telling the listeners who maybe don't know who you are um, a little bit about your background and especially the lenses that you write through? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, What do
1: I want to say? My background is that I grew up in Michigan, so I am a Midwesterner. I grew up in a union family. My father was a union organizer. I'm also a father-daughter incest survivor. I um, uh, identify as working class and queer, and I've been an activist in queer community for, oh gosh, 25 years. Um, I am also a writer, a poet, and a novelist, and... um, Yeah, I I do want to tell you about BENT, though. Yeah, please do. BENT is the nation's only LGBTIQ writing institute. But that's a lot of letters. It is a lot of letters. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, questioning, and queer. So, um, yeah, we are the only writing institute in the country for that population, and um, we're thriving in Seattle.
0: Can you can you, can you you explain a little bit more about the model that you've created with that institute?
1: Yeah. Actually, I founded it in my living room. I put out a flyer. People showed up the next week. A year later, I quit my day job. It just was out of control. So um, the model that I uh, used, which now has grown into its own nonprofit organization with a board of directors and its own classroom that's no longer in my living room, belongs way more to the community than it doesn't belong to me at all anymore. I teach there. That's it. But... Um, The model uh, that I founded Bent with is based on the crazy notion that people grow more quickly when they feel joy than when they feel shame. And so we have a strengths-based teaching model where we start with what is working in somebody's writing, put a flame under it, turn that flame (laughs) up, and then even suggestions for um, uh, strengthening are exactly that. suggestions for strengthening and they're not criticisms Mm -hmm. so um, and that model turns out people grow in that model which is exciting it doesn't work for everyone but neither does the academic model Mm -hmm. and so um, yeah cool yeah you um,
0: you talked about you you've talked with me about bent a little bit and Mm -hmm. and and a couple of things that I remember is the um, the intimacy that that you Mm. create
1: right you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, basically, we create intentional, intimate community. And so we, there are five classes that are running right now, five different days of the week. And each of those classes has a cap of 15 people in order that we create an int- intimacy among the students so that they begin to trust each other and begin to be able to go to some of the deeper places that they want to write about. And not exclusively at Ben, but primarily people are writing their own stories. And uh, we keep the cost low for classes. Uh, $60 a month is what it costs to be an event class. And that is deliberately so that people who would not necessarily have access to arts education can afford to show up. And what's great about intimate community is that once people start trusting each other, they start writing about you know the deeper things and then witnessing each other's lives right. and that that fostering of community I think is revolutionary I think that it is a peace and love based model and I don't care how cheesy that sounds um, it's what I see grow among people and the other thing about intimate community is once somebody writes something and they read it and it has an impact they view themselves as powerful in a brand new way and That is a joyful process. Yeah, And of course, in the words of Audre Lorde, once you begin to feel joy, you demand that that joy show up in other parts of your life. I'm butchering the quote, but that's basically what she said. Once you feel joy, you begin to demand that other parts of your life have that joy in it. And that is empowerment. And that's exciting. And that is arts as liberation, art as resistance. And
0: right. And th- that is exactly why I asked you to start by talking about that model because Thank I you. feel like that is what you do in your own writing too. Mm. Is that is that accurate to say? Tell me more about that. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> just that you uh, tell your own stories. You yeah. You um, use art as resistance. You you create community and intimacy, and you you just lay it out. Yeah. You lay it out there, and and you let people witness your stories, and and then that's a way of that's a revolutionary way of changing the world. Thank you. Don't you,
1: don't you think? Thank so? you. Yes, I, I began writing when I was 28 years old and I was extremely depressed. And there really, I didn't see a lot of other options. I was unemployed, broke, freaking out. Um, and I wrote my way out of that depression and I never stopped. And the things that I began writing about were my experiences of incest, my experiences of growing up without economic privilege. Um, At the same time that I began writing, I was reading the book Skin by Dorothy Allison, Mm -hmm. probably my favorite book. It's a book that changed my life the most. And I remember her writing about telling her own story and what a beloved process that was. And I began to write my own story. And um, I began reading it in a laundromat, actually. And I remember writing in the margin of the book, "Liberation is having your own washing machine." We didn't have a washing machine in my house till, till I was uh, in fifth grade, and so that was quite a challenge um, for you know a family with kids. And uh, I'm a little bit off track here, but what I want to say about this is that yes, I do write about my own stories. I was told by an astrologer once that, um, and I don't, you know steer my life by the stars all that much. But um, I was told that the way that I could contribute and bring healing to the world was through my own wound. And I find that's true. Yeah. I find that's absolutely true.
0: So let's um, start with, let's sh- share a poem with uh, the audience. Wow, okay. And and I'm thinking in the point that we are in the conversation that mm-hmm. red versus blue might be the best one to start
1: with. If yeah, you, sure. Is that's okay with you? Yeah,
0: totally. I'll start there. Okay. So okay, red versus blue.
1: Okay. So I wrote this poem after the second election that George Bush stole and I'm still performing it because I believe it has some relevance. Um, Yeah, and I guess that's all I wanna say about it. Uh, Oh, one more thing and that is that this is for the red states. Stupid. My uncle Melvin is stupid. He voted for George Bush. Hell, he voted for Bush Senior at when something like this read my lips no new taxes. That time, like this time, the Democrats were not speaking a working people's language. Oh sure, their candidates' arguments were all nuanced and complex, but what the hell does that mean to my Uncle Melvin whose parents sat him in front of a television since before he could walk? Why? Because it's the option for exhausted laborers. People whose hands will never fully soften no matter how much pumice they apply, their skin grows that way. People keeping the bunion pad companies in business from standing in bad shoes on assembly lines for lifetimes. People whose primary source of entertainment is no stretch the television, because after a day on your feet, what a body needs is rest. Exercise is something people do who sit at computers all day. It was from the television that my uncle Melvin learned to absorb information in highly emotional, oversimplified sound bites, so his very head works that way, but because he's stupid? No. No because he's brainwashed. Brainwashed and kept poor by underpaying his labor from the time he dropped out to support his sisters to today, when he can't even afford to buy his wife a proper set of teeth. I'm not kidding here, and it isn't funny. My Aunt Juanita has permanent sores in her mouth from her ill-fitting dentures, which, by the way, without them, she can't even go to the bathroom in the night for fear of someone seeing her. Shame comes standard in my family. My uncle Melvin is powerless to purchase his wife some relief, but we offer him a presidential choice. A guy with a fancy education, or someone who sounds like a down-home boy promising no new taxes, no more bite out of his backbone. The ain't gonna outlast the mortgage on the trailer. This is not fiction. The trailer is white and they'd like to get a fence to keep the rabbits out of the pansies. Melvin is gonna vote his pocketbook because maybe Winita can get some teeth. Think about your own. Touch them with your tongue. Now imagine the person you love the most live without them. Face the world and try to feel beautiful or worthy. Melvin is going to vote for the guy who promises to put more power in his pocket. If the Democrats haven't learned that yet, then they are the dummies, not the people who didn't vote for them. Have I mentioned my Aunt Juanita can't read? I am a slim generation away from not being able to decipher my own ballot. But yeah... Melvin responds to oversimplified, deep-fried versions of the truth, but why? Because it's been his diet for as long as he can remember. Have some turkey, he says to me at Thanksgiving, and then he covers the gap in his own smile with his palm. I slather my potatoes in Juanita's gravy and, for shame, will not interject my opinion when at his table in front of his bounty, he asks me to bow my head and pray. Why? Because what right do I have to judge their source of hope, really? During grace, I know that my uncle's God is someone who hates me and my depraved... Coastal ways. So once again, I am torn, acutely aware of how far apart are both my homes, my hand in Melvin's, my cheek warms with cowardice over having left my whole family behind in search of my own freedom. Just as quick, the other cheek cools with dread at the hate that is blooming in my new home. From stealth bias into full-bodied disgust, my liberal friends are condemning entire red regions as idiots incapable of nourishing themselves out of their rickets that has rotted their brains. Not new, certainly, but... Shocking as hell out of the mouths of people with whom I thought I shared values. More than ever, I am straddling two boats hell bent on rowing in opposite directions. awake wake up sweaty with the pressure to choose and choking on the privilege it is to have the option in the first place. Some days, I am side by side with my chosen, if depraved, queer family. Damn right I say, fucking homophobes. I think about the last public hate crime to happen in my Midwest town and feel sick. Two gay men sleeping, wake to find their house being painted with faggots, go home. But when I think about how this could have happened, I remember who used to live there. The Geiger girls, whose father and uncle worked around silos all their lives, but during the 80s farm crisis, accidentally walked into one and were overcome by fumes. Each died in his brother's arms so their families might make it on the insurance money, which they did for about a decade before Jim and Joseph looking for a weekend refuge from the city bought the whole farm plus house for a screamin' deal. As artists, they had plans to redecorate, and I quote, Have these people ever heard of paint? Yeah. We have. And sometimes what gets called homophobia is a little more complicated than that. Closer to home? I think about my Seattle neighborhood gone white in seven years. Not so when I moved in, but then again, white dykes are the first wave of gentrification. I sit with that in my pocket and look down at my rapidly separating feet, both boats spilling over with white people. From this position, I have this to respectfully say, respectfully say to my queer peers, gay marriage is something the privileged, specifically college-educated people, can afford to long for. And it feels like a middle-class agenda. For me, given the choice, I'd sell out my want-to-get-married peers any day for equal pay for equal work, but not in the way the feminists thought of it, which, by the way, preserved the class order. But in a way that says an hour is an hour is an hour. I don't care if you're pushing a broom or paper. You ought to get paid the same. If we mean what we say in this country, that all men are created equal, then it follows that we all have the same relationship to time, that it's precious, and giving it ought to be compensated. So, this is to say that I don't think we were defeated because of the middle-state homophobes. We were defeated defeated. because we haven't begun to address working people's needs, let alone truly align ourselves with people of color. We let the right use us as a smokescreen to their real agendas, keeping the poor poor and eroding civil rights of people of color. If all queers, starting today, devoted our lives full-time to economic justice, I would not be surprised if we'd have our gay marriage sooner than Melvin and Juanita will get that fence. If all Democrats, starting today, devoted their party to an hour is an hour, well, I guarantee that every toothless bastard and dumbfuck everywhere would vote for that before you could say, read my lips, new class order. Okay,
0: wow, wow. I, that is an amazing poem. Thank you. And so many different levels. And instead of me saying what I think, I would like to hear you talk about what that poem means to you.
1: Um, Cause it's- That yeah. poem, I've never said this before. I feel like that poem is is the beginning of redeeming myself for having left them behind. Because I feel like I bring them into places of academia like this with me. My Uncle Melvin and my Aunt Juanita would never have occasion to be at Humboldt University. Yeah, They would never have occasion to be at Cornell University mm-hmm. or Berkeley or any of the places that I've had the privilege I got to read that poem in Washington D.C. I took my uncle Melvin and Aunt Juanita <laughs> to Washington D.C. And so I feel like it's my personal redemption. I also feel like I wrote it because I was heartbroken after that election, when my liberal friends in the city were literally condemning red reach. I mean, there were there were emails going around about Jesus land, and you know, let's. Let's you know bomb some of these places, you know, like Florida and Ohio and you know yeah. Indiana, and it's not that simple, no, you know, so I think people
0: don't people don't connect the dots, yeah, and I think that's part of what you help yeah do
1: is connect the dots, thank you, I want to humanize those people to whether're
0: well, your family good city
1: liberals, yeah, they're my family, yeah, and um, yeah, so that's what that poem means to me and it's one of the most important poems to me that I've ever written. Yeah, definitely. Cool.
0: <laughs> Thank you for sharing it.
1: Thanks for asking.
0: Yeah. I think um, one of the things I think we should touch on and that poem definitely touches on is the, is the complexities and the intersections. And um, can, you, can you speak to that a little bit, either about that poem or about just that, it, that all these issues of oppression intersect? Mm-hmm. Because that's a lot of what I think you write about.
1: Yeah, I can't separate my queer self from my working class, union daughter self. Um. They're the same to me. In fact, the way that I express my queerness comes from working class values mm-hmm. of resistance, and um. Yeah. So. So in one, the reason that that time that well it's still painful when it happens because city people judge uh (laughs) rural people all the time I mean happened yesterday I heard somebody do it and um it's always an ouch to me when it happens because I cannot separate those things they live in me you know and it's important to not leave one another behind when we're visioning right liberation you know um In fact, I've been on campus the last couple of days as the keynote for the Kink on Campus Mm -hmm. conference, and um, it's one of the reasons why I think queer folks are so interested in having one type of queer person show up on the poster so that we look like we can easily assimilate. But when you have... And to sort of to hide our sexuality in the background, because when you have people who are wearing their sexualities visibly, and you can't see me here in Radioland, but mm-hmm. I definitely wear my sexuality visibly, what shows up is class and race and economics, and that is a whole mess to deal with, mm-hmm. right? And it should show up. You know, the fact that my cousins don't have health insurance, and will never have jobs that require a resume is linked to gay marriage is linked to immigration the fact that we've done such a poor job of linking the right to marry to immigration rights yeah is a statement of how oppression is winning basically we're being split up our seams you know and if we strengthened the the obvious opportunities to link those two things together yeah. um we would not be defeatable (laughs) I like that yeah and that takes
0: removing our blinders and our 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 privileged views and and I think that's part of what you do with your poetry is you you make it so that we have to look at at what we don't want to see yeah and and Yeah. yeah it requires being uncomfortable definitely yeah and you you make us uncomfortable but in a beautiful way thank you yeah can you um I think this is a great place for you to do peace and justice Okay. Do you think? I do. I kind of want to do. You want to do sand first?
1: I do, because I think that sand informs peace and justice. Is that okay? Yeah, no, that's cool. So I wrote this for my brother Jim, who came home from Vietnam and was never the same. If the sand could speak, she might say, I am the sand. When people climb me, they think I am a mountain, but I am one grain at a time. Under me is sludge. Under me are mollusks in the water table, people's old rings, abandoned shoes, driftwood that isn't drifting anymore. Under me is a nation of rust, and under me is oil. Some things I can contain. They are coughed-up, uncontainable grief, but I contain it. Here, under my surface, is an ocean of widows, of orphans, open-mouthed cradles crying for their contents, some things I wish it could not contain, like bones. I'm not the color I was meant to be. Have not the hue God gave me, I am the color of an entire people's humiliation, occupation, desecration. I am the color of a blood-red dawn. Something itself I wish did not rise over me, did not push me out of the dark to look at myself, for I cannot be washed. Monsoons pummel me, see-seep through me, but all I can do is fill my pockets, while always in my interstitial tissue is the residue of death. I am the sand, the very ground beneath the soldier's boot, but I do not get a vote. I don't mind being pissed on or dug into to hold their shit. I don't mind their semen, their snot, their spat-out cores of lychee fruit, old peels, wads of gum, even the butts of their cigarettes. But when they rest their guns on me, I wish I could open my mouth and swallow. Instead, I become accomplice to murder. I carry their tanks, their fates, their patriots, their false gods. I carry their hopes of being heroes, wrapped in the uniforms of peer pressure, you see. I know the reason that men kill other men is they don't want to look like pussies. They spill their intestines, their livers, their bladders, their throats over my scapes so they don't have to be embarrassed. If you ask an American of what he's most afraid, he'll say it's being laughed at. If you ask an Iraqi of what she's most afraid she'll say it's being killed. I carry their kill. Corpses. Open-mouthed, maggoted throats over my back on the way to burial. In some nations I am not much more than an only partially closed mass grave. But I was meant to be something else. I was meant to be the site of conception under stars. confession of want to be taken in sex as prayer not ethnic cleansing i am the sand I do not have organ or heart, but I can contain. Bring me your war. Split open my mouth and make me wolf. I'll let the sea seep through me until its machine is nothing but rust. I promise to need more than your vote, so remind you. In the host of your body, you contain everything human ever done. From torture to martyr, murder to mother, Judas, Pharaoh, Abu Jal, Noah, Moses, Muhammad. I am but a reflection of you. The heat from your feet forges me mere, so bring me your best sweat. Bring me grace, mercy, absolution. Draw oath restitution. Bring me your first last yet to be born daughter and son. No blood but that of your birth and then bring me a movement one grain at a time so one day in my name world we will reconcile with dawn.
0: Yeah. What was that last line? Reconcile with dawn. With dawn. It's beautiful.
1: Powerful. So that we can look at ourselves in the light. Yeah. So that the earth can look at herself in the light. Huh. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea, I find. <laughs> Looking at
0: oneself in the light.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Say more. Um, well, I don't know why this is coming up, but it makes me think about how as an abuse survivor and as an addict, I've really had to take on honesty in my life because mm-hmm. I learned lying early. You know, you could say it's one of my second languages. And, um, and I've really taken on my integrity because I want to be able to look at myself in the light. It's also the reason that I've taken on forgiveness, which I never thought was gonna show up in my life. I spent about a decade enraged because of what had been done to my body and my soul and my heart, Um, the kinds of violence that I survived. I spent a long time mad. And people would talk to me about forgiveness and I'd be offended by it. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't time for me to take that on. But here in my mid-40s, it's shown up. And it turns out the kinds of things that I'm putting down, they were so heavy. I'm so much lighter than I used to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll read a poem about that in a minute. Cool.
0: But. And I'm, I'm just thinking about that in terms of that translates in, in what you write, not only about yourself and your own personal journey and your own personal a path to forgiveness and joy, but yeah, uh, but in the political message about the sand and the desert, and oh yeah, and and oh, it's there, yeah, and and it's there for all of us, and and looking at our own privilege and and not telling ourselves lies, yeah, and and you know, unearthing, um, yeah, the pain, unearthing the pain, in order to see the light and in order to move towards joy,
1: yes, and the first lie we can undo is the assertion that we don't lie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's a big one. I think think people don't, there's a lot of denial.
1: I think it's one of the first steps of safety is to tell each other how we lie, to tell each other how we're not trustable. Um, Getting authentic about that is is important, you know? Um, Because Because if you've ever stolen a pen from work, you lie, right? Everybody lies. The trick is to reduce the amount of time it takes you to tell on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um I'm curious
0: what sorts of reactions you've had to your poetry. Uh reactions,
1: wow. Um Wow, reactions. Uh people seem to like my poetry. <laughs> <laughs> um People seem to be inspired by it. So I'm some always oh, I'm always really moved when people want to write. Mm-hmm. Um I'm moved when survivors can see reflection of themselves. I'm also moved when other when p- people who are survivors of other types of trauma want to w- to write. One of my friends back home, he was following following me around and going to my shows and I thought he might be creepy for a while. But it turns out he's a Vietnam veteran and um he had been listening to my poetry about incest, and it it was he says that my poetry was it helped him unlock the door to writing about what it was like to be in Vietnam and um that's really moving to me, yeah there's a direct link to peace in that, and uh yeah, yeah, so um what other kinds of so
0: so I ahead. guess I asked that because because you're talking about asking people to look at things that are uncomfortable and asking people to look at, you know, to look at their denial. Mm. And I'm just wondering if that comes up in conversations afterwards or or if you, you know, if there's any reactions around that or no?
1: Around denial. Um, I find that people sometimes are tearful and I think that that is good because when people are moved to have emotion, it means that they're more naked. We build up such calluses between us and the world. And if my work can help people remove some of those, even temporarily, and show up in the present moment with their truest, most authentic self and no buffer between them and the world, wow, what would happen if everybody did that all at once? Right. I think we would find <laughs> that we have a few really core common desires right, to be loved and to be safe and to be known. So, if we all dropped our calluses and our defenses at once, we couldn't possibly be doing the things in the world to the earth, to each other that we're doing. Right. So, yeah. So that's how your
0: poetry is radical and resistance. I
1: guess so, huh? (laughs) I guess so. Also, it's the way that I transform my own wounds, for sure. Right. You know, I heal through my work. Right. It's the primary way that I have healed. You know, and somebody asked me, more than once I've been asked, when are you going to stop writing about incest? When I'm done with it. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, maybe a thousand poems at this point, And lots of different lenses on the same experience. And it's like a three-way mirror. You go to try on a cute dress, and you're in the dressing room, and you got one mirror, and you can see it. But you go out, and you look at it in a three-way mirror, you can see yourself turning all around right Right, right. like that's the thing you need you need more angles I don't have just one thing to say about this right it is the lens through which I view the world I'm giving you my worldview through this particular topic Mm -hmm. but it's no less valid just because it's a, a single topic and in fact anyone listening who's been told that they shouldn't write about certain things especially if they've been told that they shouldn't write about certain things because they're whining about them or they're being a victim screw that Write about it, write about it, write about it. Because what you're bringing to the world is not just the topic that you're writing about, but you're telling people how you see things. Right. You're bringing your lens to the page, and that's beautiful. Right.
0: So I think this is a great time for you to do um, your peace and
1: justice poem. Okay, great. Thank you. Lorena. Yes. Dear friend of mine, if I had one message that Mm -hmm. I could give to the world, it would be this one. Okay. And it surprises me. It is the poem that I am still running to catch up to. When peace comes, it will not be on the wing of a dove, but on a wave of 100,000 million foaming tongues. She will ride the dirty water of held back vengeance, surf over centuries of violence that we have all called justice. But justice will have to leave his boots at her doorstep take the latch key from around his neck, and enter her house on his knees, what are you willing to give up for peace? Have you made any with your wolves? Have you forgiven your father? If you want the Palestinians and Israelis to stop slinging slop, then have you sent a Christmas ham to the man who beat your mother? Distasteful, repugnant, he will nonetheless be among those huddled in the house of humanity when peace comes. To make her house our house, we may have to dig forks into our palms under tables heaped with ill-gotten bounty. I don't know if I'm willing. Which is to say, I don't know if I've readied myself for her residence in my heart. The list of those against whom I hold grudges grows as I breathe. As I breathe, I am an American, and therefore believe in heroes, sink my claws into competition. I want to be the first one over the finish line, photographed while tongue-kissing my enemy, if only to see my picture on the front page of forever. I want to be that martyr, because for an American, what is furthest from monster? When I hold up my hands, I want the Pope to be able to eat from them while he congratulates me. What are my motives? In my best moments, I want my father my rapist, to eat bountifully from his own hands. And don't I think I'm noble for this? But really, could I welcome the idea of his orgasm? What would it take for me to want my father to, without shame, receive his God-given right to bodily pleasure? Who would I have to be to be that invested in peace? What am I made of? Girl. Times rape times the fists of lovers in my face, times poverty equals the white dress of victimry. I have sold my vows to the ferryboat man so he could rush me to the bank emblazoned with not guilty. But really, what kind of horrible pain have I caused my father by telling the world my version of him? If you don't think this keeps me up at night, then maybe you think I don't have a heart. Maybe the queen stole it, replaced it with that of a swine. I used to think that the most horrible part is that I still love him, That I couldn't suck him out of my DNA but maybe it's the most magnificence ever bestowed upon me by the mistress of peace. Maybe in her tattered gown she will escort me over her doorstep on the day I send my father flowers. Thank him for the beautiful scar out of which to carve myself. What am I willing to sacrifice? I will tell you my life but what if what's required for us all to breach the doorstep of peace is to shock the carapace of our grudges and then liquid all of humanity into a new, complicated, and carved-out-of-our-scars relationship to forgiveness. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Thank you so much for being on the show. It oh, what a so pleasure. I appreciate you um, taking the time out of your very long day to come and oh. share your thoughts and your poetry with us. Just a pleasure to have the privilege of people's ears. So. <clears throat> And right. you're good company, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. My guest has been Tara Hardy. For more information about Tara Hardy, you can go to her Facebook page or www.bentwriting.com. You've been listening to the Mad River Anthology. The engineer was Tim Ayers, and I'm Lorena Boswell. If you have questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at eight two six. 6089 On our blog, an online archive of past programs can be found at madriveranthology.wordpress.com The show is also available in iTunes The Mad River Anthology airs the second and fourth Sundays of the month at 10pm and is produced for KHSU located at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California along the Main highway. Go stands along the highway. Guess no one wants to live around here anymore.